You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. going on guys welcome to another episode of peer pleasure with dewey halpas on equal vision records and sound talent media i am dewey your host with the most bringing you more great content week after week guys this week i am totally stoked to bring you this episode with steven brodsky from cave in from mutoid man now from old man gloom uh just a prolific songwriter and one of the best guitar players I've ever seen. He is super influential to me uh, from the early Caven stuff. One of the first, the first band I saw at the Troubadour on our big, uh, our big first venture into California, going to a legendary venue for the first time. Uh, man, what a fucking awesome experience that was. And we talked about that a bit. Um, but I was totally stoked to get him on. Thanks to Nate Newton for hooking us together. I know you guys love the Nate Newton episode. Uh, from Converge, and damn, man, what an awesome, an awesome dude, and I had a blast talking to Steven, and it was one of those, um, one of those conversations we have that just kind of goes wherever, and it went to some pretty cool places, it went to some dark places, um, there's some, you know, uh, for, for survivors of, of trauma, there are some triggers in this episode, so, um, definitely listen with caution, uh, don't listen with kids in the car. Um, that's usually the case on this show. I always mark it as explicit just so people don't listen to it uh, with kids in the car because I don't it is you know in a way for my kids later, but not now. So uh, I know you guys understand that. but so thank you so much for coming back week after week. It's been uh, a crazy, crazy time. Uh, we just got through Thanksgiving. 
Christmas is on the way. Uh, we're going to have some big stuff coming in December for you guys as well, so stay tuned for that. Um, hopefully you guys are doing doing well and, and mental health-wise doing well. I know the holidays are a hard time you know, for a lot of people, for me especially, and I just have never been a fan, and uh, it's when I get the most depressed. Um, it's when I start to think about things and, and just the obligatory nature of, of Christmas drives me insane. And, and uh, yeah, so anyways, there it is. But I'm doing well and, you know, keeping positive. Been doing a ton of episodes lately, so there's a lot of stuff coming at you that has not been released yet. And it will be, do not worry. Uh, for, for you guys who have listened to every episode, there's a lot more in, t- a lot more in store for you. So thank you so much. Let's get some business out of the way, and then we'll jump into this one. Uh, PeerPleasurePodcast.com is the website. PeerPleasurePod at gmail.com is the email to get in touch with me. If you have guest ideas, I've gotten a ton of people reaching out with uh, trying to connect me with other people and guest ideas and things like that. Um, (laughs) It's been awesome getting all the feedback on the show. I, I put a lot of work into this, but I also need it to stay sane, I think. Um, so it's it's like a it's a labor of love, but also a necessity for me to keep this going. So thank you so much to all of you who listen every week and review the show and show it to friends and and word of mouth is the best way to spread this thing. And you guys have been doing a fucking fantastic job on doing that. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I just want to get into this episode, guys. I I'm so excited to bring it to you. Steven is an awesome dude, and and if you have not listened to Caven for some reason, uh, if you've not listened to Mutoid Man, if you have not listened to um, Old Man Gloom, and, and he just he was you know Old Man Gloom hasn't been in Old, old Man Gloom the whole time, of course. But um, yeah, uh, we didn't talk about that much. Maybe on the part two we'll do that. Um, but we went all over the place. So without further ado. Let's get into my conversation with Steven Brodsky from Cave-In and Mutoid Man.
Hey, Dewey, how's it going? Good, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Excellent. Thanks for doing this, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I uh, had such a good time with Nate, and Nate and I had never met before either. <laughs> and we we uh, we went all over the place. Oh, good. Yeah, he forwarded me your email and said I should do it in all caps. So <laughs> I couldn't turn that down. That might have been the most enthusiastic intro uh, I've been a part of. It was hey, funny. when Nate Newton screams at you in all caps, you got to listen. <laughs> That's very true, man. How are you doing? How's uh, you're in New York? Yes. Whereabouts? Brooklyn? Yeah, Greenpoint. Oh, okay. Is uh, is everything upended over there still? We're in Portland and we're just back on a lockdown. Oh, yeah. Yes and no here in Brooklyn. Um, you know, it's New York, so it's sort of business as usual all the time, no matter what the catastrophe. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. But as far as like outdoor dining um that's been implemented and pretty early on although man there was some crazy footage that i saw of a car that rammed into one of those outdoor dining setups and that was really unnerving to see um i mean it's new york so people are just like overworked and underslept and um who knows what the situation was at that moment but um I'm not someone who really likes to just sit next to a busy street yeah. <laughs> with like yeah. cars and trucks like racing by while I'm trying to eat some food. So, yeah. But I, I also understand that like it, it, it's all about drastic measures for um, these situations just so people can keep their businesses alive. And uh, I can't fault anybody for that, you know? Sure. I did not uh I did not hear about that or see that, but it's something I've thought about every time I drive past one of those homemade patios that they build in the street here, just how dangerous that really is. Yeah, yeah. You mean you think about doing it while you drive by? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> like call of the void. That way. That that waiter fucked me over hard on that on that dish. I'm gonna get him back. No, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, yes. him and all his customers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do them all a favor. Don't try the oh, fucking man. mac and cheese, um, dude. Yeah, I've uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, when when we used to tour, I, I if someone slept in the van. I always hated that too because we always parked on a usually on a street. And you just see how many cars get rear-ended in the middle of the night or, or the the mirrors ripped off by people driving home either drunk or, or falling asleep. And it always terrified me, but uh, I never slept well that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to own a car here in New York. I no longer own one, um, which is nice in a lot of ways. But it's like when I need a car, then I'm like, oh, well, this is a bummer. Um, but it was a white Corolla and when I moved to New York, uh, it slowly started to turn yellow because of all the cabs that crashed into it. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just a little bit at a time. Slow yeah. erosion or the opposite of erosion, <laughs> I guess. Dude, that is so fucking hilarious. Uh, so real quick. So the way I, I always kind of start, I mean, we just start when I call, but 
I like to kind of start them out on how uh, I came across what you do. And uh, it, for me, it was it was the first time we were in L.A. Uh, we were we were just taking off to where we released our first record. We're going down, you know, playing some shows and our manager was like, hey, do you guys want to go to the Troubadour tonight and see Cabin? And I guess I could jump back real quick. So we were recording our record in 2001. Uh, man, when did, I guess I don't even need to be asking you this, but when Jupiter, Jupiter wasn't out yet. Jupiter had, uh, our producer, Chris Crummett, had gotten an advanced copy somehow and had it playing in the studio when we were setting up for the day. And I had already, I had already been, you know, into you guys, you know, on uh, until your heart stops. So when I heard it, I was like, "Who is this?" And it's like, "Caven." I was like, "What?" And it was awesome, and I loved it. But I, I still never gotten to see you guys live because we were from Alaska. We we moved to Portland in two thousand, missed so many great bands and great shows. Um, but we were in L.A. and and our manager's like, "Hey, do you want to go to the Troubadour? Caven's playing." We're like, "Fuck yes!" So he got us in the show. That was our first time at the Troubadour. The first time really seeing like a, a, a show in California, in L.A. Um, and it was you guys. And it was incredible. We were watching from the balcony, not the not the uh, green room side, but the the other side where the bar is and looking down and, and you guys kicked into the first song and it was just unreal. And I don't know who you were playing with because we were outside until you guys played. But I will tell you this, the weirdest uh group of people that I ran into and or met that night at that show was Cato Kalen from the OJ trial who was at the show. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have met before. Uh, Nick Oliveri from Queens of the Stone Age and uh, Tori Spelling. All on the same night. Insane. Wow, that's quite a memory. Yeah. It, well, it was impactful. It was the first real big show we had seen in a real venue. <laughs> wow. Amazing. I wonder if that was around the time that Caven was touring with Icarus Line, um, because we had spent some time in L.A. writing for the follow-up to Jupiter, and we were staying at this place called the Citrus Suites in Santa Monica, Um and we were there for maybe like one or two months at a time. And then we wanted to get back to the East Coast at some point. So we decided to tour our way out there. And we did a tour with the Icarus line. And I'm pretty sure we played the Troubadour on that tour. So um, if it was that tour, then that would have been like the first show or something close to the first show of that trip. But if it was earlier than that. If it was the Jupiter tour... Man, I, you know, I, I can't remember which venue we would have played in L.A. if it would have been the Troubadour or not. But um, what a wild place with just such rich <laughs> rock and roll history. Yeah, it was, it was like this legendary club. And the second he said, you want to go to the Troubadour, we're like, uh, yeah, sure. Like we're, we're totally green and just had no idea what to do. And then, yeah, in line, we run into to Nick and Cato and then. Tori Spelling was just walking home to back to Beverly Hills across the street. So that was the, the, yeah. And then seeing you guys that night was just incredible. And it just burned into my memory because it was just so powerful. Um, I mean, you guys have a, a, a presence for sure on stage. That's just unmatched. So um, yeah, but that's how, like, that's how I actually experienced 
what you do in a way other than just listening to the music on a on a record. So, um, and I've been you know hooked ever since. So it was uh, it was incredible. But uh, yeah, just a weird. I mean, the people you meet in LA. I mean, you live in New York, so you know about this. Where what did we used to say that you look down the street in New York, you either see the most beautiful woman you've seen in your life or the craziest person you've seen in your life uh, at the next second. So <laughs> I guess you're used to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that definitely holds some weight here. Um, I feel like New York is constantly challenging my survival instincts. And I feel like the pores in my skin are just constantly open to whatever influence or pollution or insanity is just brewing in the atmosphere here. And there's something I really love about it, but it can be exhausting, um, especially like the first five years or so that you live here and you're trying to basically just find your way and get in your groove. Um, it was tricky for me at first. I, I definitely feel pretty settled at this point. Um, I'm coming up to 10 years living here, so I'm almost officially a New Yorker, even though I'll always be a mass hole at heart. <laughs> a mass hole? That's a new term I've not heard. I guess I didn't spend enough time on the East Coast. I, I guess not. I guess uh, you, you've been lucky enough not to have to drive around Boston. <laughs> I've ridden around Boston. We used to play the Middle East over there, and uh, well, I guess that's Cambridge, but I guess it's similar. Same. I guess it's just yes. a part, but yeah, the Middle East... Uh, 18 and over club, which was the weirdest thing. Um, but yeah, I, we didn't spend a ton of time in, in Boston. Uh, I did learn to pronounce Worcester instead of Worcester. Um, I got school on that pretty early. We played the palladium over there. I think is what it was called. Um, yeah. Common mistake, common mistake. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's, it's one of those things where it like, it looks different than it's spelled and then it's spelled different than it sounds. And then you never quite pronounce it right. And everybody has a different way of saying it. And uh, people are usually an asshole about it too. So there you go. That's <laughs> yes. Massachusetts in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Masshole. So were you, were you born and raised in Massachusetts? Yes. Which part? Well, I was born in Boston and I was raised in a small town. Actually, it's the city known as the town of Methuen, Massachusetts, which is about 35, 40 minutes driving north of Boston and it borders New Hampshire. Um, So, yeah, I lived there, grew up there and then moved out um, basically when I was 18 and moved to the city. Dude, I've. I know the I know that feeling. I did the same. I moved out the weekend I turned eighteen, and then we moved down to Portland from Alaska, and it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Were you uh, were you pretty seasoned at that point into into what you wanted to do when you when you left? Yeah, to a to a degree for sure. Um, I sort of looked at college like, well, this is just something that I'm going to do until I can do my band full time, (laughs) Uh, which sort of seems wasteful in hindsight. But, you know, that was my attitude, you know, just to be completely transparent. Um, But I'd started playing music um, when I was 12 or 13. I like really just kind of took a dive into it. And up until that point, um, it was kind of rough for me, like just trying to find myself and, you know, get into something that I felt like I was good at or something that I could sort of immerse myself in with, um, some really like fruitful results. And I was only getting so far with like drawing or sports. 
or um I, I don't know I, I video games i guess too um <laughs> but back then too it was like you know becoming a professional gamer um the only really uh the only example of that that i had seen at that point was fred savage and the wizard yes i was just gonna mention that <laughs> you know like talk about a rarity yeah yeah well you say you say i mean you you were struggling to find yourself like like sports video games uh when did you uh, do you remember when you started to to even think about that or become enlightened to the fact that maybe i'm not gonna do like with those things like when you started sports when you started uh you know anything when you became aware that uh maybe this isn't for me or or instead of just doing it you know when you're a kid like you hop on your bike and you just go or like uh you, with video games, you get your Nintendo, you start playing it, you're just having a good time. Sports, you know, uh, are a little different because you're playing with your peers usually. And that's when, you know, the hazing and, and uh, bullying starts. And if you're not great at something, they'll probably tell you pretty early on. Um, but do you remember when you started like trying things and then realizing, hey, I might not be good at this or you're struggling? Oh, definitely. Um, I would say middle school, like grade five through seven was really tough for me. Um, I had a friend group that I really tried hard to sort of um, be a part of, and um, I never felt like I was totally accepted by them. Um, And so, you know, I was just trying for the wrong reasons. Like I hadn't really sort of found the the passion um, of playing music yet. And um, you know, so I was falling flat on all this other stuff and, um, there was a whole other friend group that I sort of knew about in my little Methuen, Massachusetts world that seemed more in line with what I wanted out of life in general. And I definitely had a day where I just showed up to school and instead of going over to the usual group of friends that i trying to um, integrate with for a few years at that point, I just walked by them and I went over to this other group of kids that I felt like were more of my kindred spirits. And that was it. It was like, um, flipping a coin. Um, and that was the beginning of my eighth grade year. And, uh, that's when I was like, all right, it's, it's on, like I'm taking guitar lessons, um, I'm buying all those heavy metal shirts that Spencer gifts that I've been eyeing for like months now, <laughs> you know, I'm throwing up my guns and roses, black light poster. I don't even know what, what I'm like. It's just, it's this cool felt poster with neon colors. I had no idea what like stoner culture was at that point. Um, I just thought it was this rad decoration that I could throw up in my room. So that, yeah, that's really when it started for me. Wow. Dude, so you just you just one day walked over and just changed everything basically with these new friends. That's wild. That, yeah. The guts that takes to do that is is uh that's serious stuff, man, back then. When you think that you school and everything is going to be your whole world forever, that's terrifying. Well, I'm glad you say that because it really felt that way at the time. Um it felt like a real risk to take and you know, there's definitely some ridicule um mm-hmm. But I was totally fine with it. I mean, it was sort of do or die for me. Like I could feel a sense of depression kind of creeping in. And um, I just felt like 
Yeah, I, I, it, it was weird. It was it was around Halloween, too, where um, some some friend was having a Halloween party and I went and like all of a sudden I'm hanging out with like, you know, kids who are like trying to grow their hair out. And that's like that's more important to them than like anything to do with sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, all right, that's that's great. I've been trying to grow my hair out for months now. And, you know, uh, I have to like sneak around it or something or you know i have to like make excuses for not going down to supercuts and getting a boy's regular (laughs) 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 so yeah it just it just all flipped it all kind of came together at the beginning of that year for me and um yeah and that's when i started meeting actually at this party that i was just talking to you about um that's where i met the first singer of Caven, Jay Frechette. And uh, he used to wear a red flannel all the time and a Sepultura uh, Beneath the Remains, like tattered metal T-shirt, ripped jeans, and he had long hair. He had like the longest hair out of any of our friends. And it was like, oh, man, if we could grow our hair like Jay Frechette, that would be badass. <laughs> Dude, this, this, and we, I think you're, you're a child of the 70s, right? Yes, okay. 79. I was, I was born in 82. And very similarly, moving up to mainland Alaska in sixth grade, I met Joe, who became our guitar player. And was I, we lived together, toured together for, what, 12 years. Uh, he was wearing a red flannel. I met him in detention. He was wearing a red flannel, uh, had a bowl cut, and a Nirvana t-shirt. And I looked back, and he was getting yelled at by the teacher in detention. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Anyways, we became like fast friends and that was my way into music as well, where he brought over like the first uh, the first Weezer record and like the early Green Day shit. And also we were like, we could play this. Like, let's just figure it out. And that was kind of similar a situation with the club that brought up my memory when you said that with the red flannel. Uh, dude, that's a huge that's a huge moment. Nice. Nice. That, yeah, that sounds very similar, um, to my experience. And actually to add to that story, um, that kind of ties in with, um, basically like a, a, a deeper glimpse into my life with this previous friend group. Um, I was, I was on a, I was on the bus home from school one day and this was like maybe seventh grade. So this was like maybe about a year or so before I started hanging out with Jay Frechette and, you know, I eventually met Jr. from Caven and Adam McGrath and mm-hmm. this whole like cast of, you know, um, characters that became really good friends. But, um, so just to give you an idea, like, like I said, I was trying to really integrate with this, sort of group of kids that really weren't my thing, but I was, I was doing anything I could, you know, sports. And, and then I thought, well, maybe I should get into a fight and like show them I can actually like, you know, stand up for myself or something or just, you know, really toxic thinking. But again, I was like 11, 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I was on the bus ride home from school and there was this kid who was picking on this girl on the bus and I, uh, I knew her cause she was sort of a neighbor. She lived up the street from me. She was a little younger. Her name was Holly and she had blonde hair. I remember this, um, and like very rosy cheeks. And so I confronted this person and I was like, Hey, cut it out, man. Stop picking on this girl. And he was like, what are you going to do about it? 
And so we started shoving each other on the bus. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to get off at your bus stop and I'm going to kick your ass. And he's like, all right, bring it on. And so like all my like jock preppy buddies are like, oh, shit. So the bus stops. He gets off. I get off. All my like friends at the time get off and we get into a fight on the sidewalk and I actually beat this kid up pretty bad. Um, I don't feel good about it, but I just, man, I just had something to prove. And, um, so I go home afterwards and I'm all shaking and my hands hurt. And, um, his mom comes to our house and she's like, I'm pressing charges. You brutally beat my son and she's all upset and my parents are upset and I get grounded and it's just a whole ordeal. And shortly after that, we started getting prank calls almost daily. And these calls would just come in and like, most of the time it was just dead air. Like the phone would ring and you'd pick up and it'd just be dead air. And you'd be like, who is this? Hello. Like you try to trace the call star six, nine, uh-huh. like, um, and it, it would just go nowhere. And so this happened for months now, fast forward again to that party, that Halloween party that I was talking about earlier mm-hmm. with Jay Frechette. Um, He mentions at some point, he's like, hey, I have to just be completely honest with you here. So do you remember getting prank calls at some point last year? And I was like, actually, I do. It's funny you mentioned that. And he's like, well, that was me because the kid you beat up happened to be my cousin. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah. What the fuck? And then his cousin went on to become like a, I think it was like a Taekwondo master. Like he studied martial arts for years after that. And I think went to the army and basically like totally turned around and became this dude that could just like pummel me with like a snap of his fingers. If he wanted to Dude. now, (laughs) have you ever met him again or seen him again? Well, we went to high school together and, um, you know, just being, friends with Jay, I would see him around and, you know, it was all water under the bridge. And I I think he had just kind of moved on with his life and, and really invested himself into like body training and and martial arts and fitness. And I think he just knew that like, Oh, I could crush this dude if I wanted to, but in a way he's the one who set me on this path. So there was this understanding there, right? Yeah. Was that your first fight? Yes, uh, my it was it was like the first real the first fight that real I had. fight where everyone circles around you and you're in it. Yeah, and that may have been the only fight too. Thankfully, so I, I got it out of the way like pretty young. <laughs> Do you realize, and no pun intended, the impact of that fight on that kid is kind of like probably the record that set you on your trajectory into music. Like you changed, you probably changed his like like changed his DNA a little bit by, by like physically like destroying him, turning him into this, like, I'm going to change in this way and, and go on his path of martial arts, self-defense, you know, uh, maybe kind of like you got into music and, and like went full speed, you know, you could have been that catalyst for him to, uh, to change. That's crazy to think about. It really is. Yeah. And, and just, you know, we were living in a small town and these connections happen. And yeah. here I was becoming best friends with this, you know, the cousin of this kid that I beat up like a year ago. And yeah, <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, pretty wild stuff. The two in Massachusetts. Yeah. Do you, so you said, you said you were, you had something to prove or felt like you had something to prove. What does that stem from? 
Did you have, do you have brothers and sisters? Yes. Are you a middle child? No, I'm the oldest actually. Um, Interesting. I got a younger brother and a younger sister. Where does that stem from? You think that, that, I mean, just having that early on, just that, that drive to, um, you know, prove yourself or be, you know, do, do you know where that stems from? Can you pinpoint that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's kind of dark, but, um, you that's know, where I we feel go, okay. Man. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Um, and I feel comfortable talking about it at this point, but, um, you know, at like a very young age, uh, I was sexually molested by a neighbor, um, for about a year, maybe longer. Um, I've actually blocked out quite a bit of the memories associated with this situation. Um, but that definitely did something to me. And I think, yeah, it was important for me to like basically figure out a trajectory in life that felt as though this is a path that was going to basically attempt to reverse whatever damage that did to me at a young age. Wow. I am sorry to hear that, man. And I, uh, I mean, uh, I, yeah, that, that makes sense. Having that, having that, uh, in your past and trying to, to rise above and, and move beyond and maybe something that would take you far away from where that happened or, or, you know what I mean? Like just to, to take you or at least to do preoccupy enough and change enough that it would, it would wipe that away. I can't, I can't speak anywhere from experience in that situation. And I, I'm terribly sorry. Um, Oh, you know, well, but that that's okay. And listen, I've done work over the years to just figure it out and move on from it. And, um, music is one of the biggest healing components that I can think of. Um, it's just been so fruitful for me in, in so many ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, talk about a catalyst or something that drives you like, yeah. I mean, basically when like the, the very thing that sort of breeds existence in this world, um, is just sort of smashed in your face. Um, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that'll do it. Um, and you know, it took me a while to kind of feel comfortable just being open and upfront about that, but you know, I'm 41, I'm not getting any younger. And mm-hmm. I know that, um, a lot of people have been through this sort of thing, um, especially growing up through the eighties, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and it's interesting too. I, you know, I feel like trauma magnetizes people like people who've been through the same type of trauma tend to like gravitate together. And, um, I've certainly met, um, some wonderful people over the years who have suffered, similar experiences and just that alone kind of helps me to know that um, I'm not alone and that it is possible to rise above it. Yeah. It's, it's uh, uh, incredible, you know, what you've done, you know, it could have gone the complete opposite direction. It could have destroyed you. It could have, it could have, you know, more than it already did, you know, on a spiral into darkness and, not pushing forward. I mean, that it goes, it seems like, um, I mean, the, the way you, you handled things, I mean, came out as in a very good way as far as what you've accomplished and done and, and not going down that path. Did you, did you, you said when you were talking about going into that, a new group of friends, which was like the, the music kids with, 
uh, you know, buying the t-shirts and stuff like stoner culture. Did you get into, uh, to drugs and stuff at that point? Or did you, uh, not get into that with that group of friends? I started to experiment with just smoking pot. Um, but I think I had such a crazy imagination at that time. I mean, this would have been like 14 years old. Yeah. Um, that it just blew my head open in some of the worst ways possible. Um, but again, I, here I am in Methuen, Massachusetts and we're getting some dirt weed. I mean, I don't know what was in this shit. It could have been like rat poison or it could have been laced with anything. I have no idea. I mean, we're, we're talking what, 25 years ago at this point. Yeah, so, yeah. um, I mean, like, you know, uh, I can go to Massachusetts and, you know, step into a store and like read from a menu all about the different choices of tinctures and edibles and whatever and flour that I want and like make an educated purchase. But, um, this was not the case. Um, you know, uh, in like 1993, um, where I was and, and the resources I had at that time. So that could have been part of it, but I, I think also, yeah, just having, um, a very overactive imagination to begin with. Um, life was weird enough. I didn't need anything to exaggerate it. Yeah, dude. Did you have that? Did you have that imagination, that wild like imagination before this trauma? Did you always have that? Or is that something that maybe stemmed from that? I never had that imagination. I still don't. I, I can't even watch uh, like Lord of the Rings. I, I can't even watch that with my kids because I can't get into it. I just don't like fantasy and things that aren't like grit and real, I have a hard time grasping. Like even playing with with my kids, like I'm not the one coming up with the stories for the Barbies or whatever, it's them. Like I can't initiate it, I've never been able to. But did you have that earlier on? Uh, I mean, I, I would just feel as though I was living in the video games that I was playing or if I shut the machine off, I was still in like the mushroom world or the minus world, or, um, I felt like when I was exploring my neighborhood, I was like, you know, uncovering little blocks or, or, um, undiscovered areas and, and gaining points or something like, yeah, it was all just sort of wrapped up in my weird brain at the time. Um, but, uh, I also, I also felt like my, my experiences with drugs were so were so minimal that um, I I just got into punk and hardcore, um, not so much for the music at the beginning, but more for just like the values of, hey, you know, these are kids that want to just be somewhere and they don't need substances to heighten their enjoyment of where they are, what they're doing. They're just totally fine with being at like a, a, a harshly lit, um, you know, VFW hall with like bad sound and, yeah. <laughs> and demo tapes being sold in the corner. And like, that's all you need, you know? And like, uh, okay, all right, there's a mosh. All right, let's do that. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like it, it was, so I actually didn't really take to the music quite as much as I did just the attitude and the vibe and, and the spirit of, um, people's perceptions on the way to live. Yeah. That's, 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 in, that's really interesting that coming at it from that angle, 
Because I think there is two schools of thought where, where you can come into it from from the culture side and the camaraderie, uh, almost like a gang where it's like, wow, these are guys are my family now kind of thing. Or finding one of your, your brother's records and putting it on and being like, what is this? Like, it's cool that you came into it from that angle, you know, especially uh, with such a wild imagination and, and just being able to experience that kind of camaraderie and, and, and uh, I mean, it's a very welcoming feeling. I remember similar stuff where getting into that and finding people that are like my people and, and that, that understood or, or held the same things I valued, uh, or is rebelling against the same things. Um, it's a fascinating thing and a really cool time, uh, in adolescence for sure. Yeah. Now, were you living in Alaska still when you discovered punk and hardcore? Oh, yeah. 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 I moved down when like the weekend I turned 18, I moved out uh, in with the guys that I was in the band with because um, they were a little older. So they had uh, or the, the the brother of my buddy Joe um, was old enough to have his own apartment. So Joe and I moved out of our houses and with our parents and, and in with him. And then we moved down in November of 2000 and and. Uh, yeah, it was all the cool thing about the, up there was everything there was there was really good weed up there. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, that was what it's like known for in the valley where we were at. So we had nothing to do. We had a bowling alley and a Walmart and we would just go skateboarding all the time. And that's how we got into that whole culture. Um, you know, it was 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 through skateboarding and then having to book our own shows because there was one club in the entire state. They would do, you know, uh, unsigned bands. It was called gigs and it, it was lasted for like, you know, 10 years and then it was gone. Um, so we we're like learning how to book rec centers and learning how to book, uh, you know, um, like VFW halls or Grange halls or, or uh, parties like we wanted to do this and we were going to do this. And and that got us. I mean, there wasn't the Internet was still a super infantile and and. Um, so it was basically on the phone, booking these shows, getting our boss from Little Caesars to drive our gear in the Little Caesars van to Anchorage to play a show at a Fairview Rec Center. We conned them into letting us rent before it got destroyed from the show. So like it was it was all it just bound bounded us or binded us all together. What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms. They are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, they have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working, as most people are, online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online, and splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits, and all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, you can use Spotify Canvas, synced lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. 
and you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid, and I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now, distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. That gets you all of that. It gets you the Passcast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the Passcast. The Passcast is a podcast that I'd started separately that is me and another podcaster or me and a guest uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of uh, that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month, because I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. Um, as a group to accomplish like setting up this scene and, and keeping it alive. So there was a lot riding on that up there. Yeah, I would imagine it would take extra work in a place like Alaska. I mean, you know, growing up in Methuen, like my impression of Alaska was, hey, you know, I heard that uh, if you walk outside with a steaming hot cup of coffee 
and you toss it in the air, it actually freezes before it hits the ground. It can happen. Wow. Hot, hot water freezes faster than cold water. So, and, and you can, if you go out, like it depends on where you're at, but if you go out, like there was days in middle school, my mom used to put gel in my hair and do a comb over every day. And I, I hated it. And, but it would free, like my hair would still be wet and it would freeze by the time I got to the bus stop. You could like break little pieces off. If, and this is dead of winter in windshield. This isn't like summertime. It's in the eighties. It's awesome. But in winter, yes, it's freezing and, and, uh, and a little, I mean, you're around stuff that can kill you. It's not human beings all the time. And that gives you this little bit of, uh, I think Alaskans are different because they have that respect for what's around them because they understand they're not the top of the food chain anymore. Um, in that situation. So that also ties a weird psychological thing into growing up up there. But uh, you don't really fear people anymore. You're fearing the bear that's in your carport or the, the moose that's charging you on the way to the bus in the complete darkness. But uh, anyway, I digress. Oh my God. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you know, I had to just be scared of the, the weed that everybody was smoking and wondering <laughs> like, why do people like this? This is insane. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's and that was oh yeah, it's a we well we both grew up in small towns and we both you know uh, discovered you know alternative culture and or counterculture. I mean, were you a skateboarder as well? Yes. Oh man, so like Thrasher magazine, we probably found a ton of bands, Big Brother, like all that stuff. I love that stuff. Um, I actually had some friends in my neighborhood the neighborhood I grew up in who were a little bit older than me that were into skating. And we had a little skate posse. Um, and yeah, there were two kids in particular that were just like, they ruled it. Um, they knew all the tricks. They, um, they had the look, they had, you know, more than just one board at a time. Um, they were into Primus, um, (laughs) you know, like, um, yeah, that was actually my first glimpse into counterculture, I think, was being a part of this little skate group. Um, and it was around the time that I think, um, you know, we were like we were talking about earlier, um, you know, the transition between like my middle school friend group to like my late middle school friend group. Um, and this was again, this was like this was this was different than school. This was like my local sort of like two streets over, three streets over, Mm -hmm. you know, um, really just like around the corner sort of friend group. Um, Also, the first time I heard Metallica, um, which is a very vivid memory, you know, I just, uh, I'd never heard anything that heavy before. Um, And it all kind of came together, you know, like, um, uh, yeah, I, I was never that good. Like, I actually didn't skate ramps until um, much later, like maybe my like mid to late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got to credit Nate for sort of um, sort of amping me up and being like, dude, you can do this. And, um, yeah, there was just there, none of that was ever available to me as a kid. Like, I didn't really know anybody who had a ramp in their backyard or there wasn't like a skate park around Methuen, Massachusetts. So... You know, I just tried for years to do a kickflip, which I've never landed. And, you know, <laughs> I might go to my grave without ever landing one. It's very possible. <laughs> Dude, didn't you just have Nate do a bunch of kickflips over the casket? 
just have you know everybody that all of your friends that can do kick flips just kick flip over you over you and they drop a flower or something wow and there's my funeral yep just shit just got deep uh (laughs) (laughs) i love it Uh, dude so and one thing you said there that really hit me too is yeah i mean you're 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 saying you know one street over two street over before the the internet and all that stuff like you were kind of forced at that age to kind of hang out with people close to like locally close to you and communicate with just those people, unless it was like a long distance call to your, your grandmother or something. But like, that's something that just doesn't happen much anymore. Everything's so you can go in your bedroom and talk to someone and like, I'm in the studio right now talking to you in New York on the phone, of course, which you could do back then. But, uh, you know, we're communicating so much on a so much broader basis you kind of lose that like neighborhood feel it seems like yeah like in 1993 this would be a long distance call and i'd have yes. to get permission from my parents uh-huh and and i'd be watching the clock like a hawk <laughs> yes <laughs> yes and and uh your your mom might pick up the other phone and just you hear her breathing trying to listen in on the conversation uh there's all <laughs> kinds of fucked up things um but so, and I'd be recording onto a uh, cassette probably. Um, oh, nice. You know, yeah. that would be, have you seen, and this is a side note, but have you seen that documentary cassette about that? I have not. Oh my God. It's on, um, it's on the fuck on, uh, iTunes or whatever. When you go like Apple TV or whatever, it's, it's got like, you know, Rollins is in it, Ian McKay. Um, and then the guy that actually invented the cassette tape, he's, he was still alive at the time. And they go with him to like the factory and there's people talking about, you know, tape trading and how it's still, you know, very much alive and getting that physical tape like handwritten on the sleeve. Um, There's still record labels that only put out cassettes. Um, They go through like Ron's and Ian's uh, cassette collections of like like the first Bad Brains demo and shit like that that HR gave to Henry. And uh, it's a fascinating documentary. So if you get the time, it's pretty good. Um, oh man. Yeah. That sounds right up my alley. And, you know, I I have that thing that happens, which, um, I have like, you know, very strong impressions of, of records that I listened to, um, you know, growing up 12, 13, 14 years old. And, um, when I hear them being streamed, it doesn't sound quite the same. No, not at all. Yeah. And yeah. And it's like, look the music doesn't change but just the impression or the feeling that it gives me is just a little different and um i gotta say like i think if you grew up with it you know you know that there's just a there's something chemically happening um and there's a there's a sound that's being produced that's it's just a little different than what you hear digitally um and i always like it's like a badge of honor to like wear out a tape yeah, you know, I thought yeah. it's like I love this record so much. I wore this shit out and I had to buy another copy. Exactly. You don't hear that anymore. I wore out my <laughs> Spotify subscription. Like it, it's I mean, digital is good for what it's good for, but that analog feel that having the product, putting it in the deal, having to rewind it, having to, you know, but then you have that little bit of a hiss and you've got that little bit of a, you know, a crackle sometimes on the on on the vinyl. I mean, there's just the, those little things, those subconscious things that that are a part of of your childhood, and and even even if you you know came into it in in uh, 
your teenage years, like vinyl cassettes, stuff like that. It's different. Like it's it it imprints on you. It really does. I really feel that. And and that just the the little nuances of it are just you can't replace that. And digital, it's just like with this show. Like I don't have any notes in front of me. I don't have. I have a recorder and my microphone and my phone. And I don't edit it. I don't. I cut off the phone ringing. That's it because it's it it's got all the 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 warts and all feel to it. Like it's got um you know coughs and. Whatever, because it's a you have a conversation. Like you and I met on the subway, and we're on a really long subway ride, and had this conversation. We couldn't edit any of that out. It all happened, you know. Um, yeah. And it's the same thing where you get that tape, or or you know, someone makes you a mixtape. It's a big deal, and like they hand wrote the the sleeve, and and this is what they were feeling, and they had to sit there and press play on this and wait for it to finish before they go to the next song. They spent the time. It meant that much to them to make that for you. Something that doesn't exist there, they just pulled, dragged, and dropped into a into a mix. You know, it's different. Oh, absolutely. And um, I'm thinking back to this interview that I read with Kurt Cobain uh, at one of the you know in one of the many magazines that I would flip through at like the local CVS growing up. Um, that was my glimpse into like what was happening with music that and MTV. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, he said something along the lines of um, why vinyl is so special to him, because it's something you actually need to take care of. You know, if you really love a record, then you take the time to put it back in the sleeve when you're finished listening to it. Um, You can't just throw it around. Um, You actually have to have a gentle hand when it comes to handling it. And I always thought that was really beautiful, actually. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, I've got a small record collection. It's not what it used to be, but um, I very much sort of subscribe to that feeling, too. And it's beyond just the music. It's the work that's gone into the look, the artwork, uh, the layout, Mm -hmm. the whole vibe of um, the package, really. And just having a respect for art, you know? Yeah. Being delicate with something. They're giving you a of completed piece of artwork from start to finish, from the songs to the the layout, like you said, like everything, the packaging. It's all meant to be as it's meant to be. It's like when when uh, you know the famous painters used to paint their paintings and hang it under a certain light and in a certain room, and it was meant to be seen there. And then photography came along. You can look at it on the plane in the bathroom if you want. Like it's it it kind of kills that side of it in. you know, the other thing that brings up in my mind is there. I think it's a, a Buddhist, um, uh, not a proverb or like a, a Buddhist um, thing where your possessions own you. Like if you go out and buy an RV, you have to find a place to put it. You have to you know maintain it, even if you're not using it. Like it starts to own you. It owns your space. Records and tapes, even CDs, physical copies of things. You have to have a spot to put them too. So you're also sharing part of your home part of where you live with that thing. And that is also really cool because you actually have to know, do I want 10,000 records, you know, because on Spotify you can sign up for whatever you can have your, your, um, your playlist, right? You can have all your collection on a little phone or like an MP3 player. But if you're going to have 10,000 records, you need to have a room and you're paying for that room to have that, to go and, and, and live in that area. I mean, that, that yeah. also, that commitment is something that does not exist unless you have the physical stuff. 
And, and speaking of commitment, your back pays for it every time you got to move. Oh, shit. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Those things don't get any lighter, man. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in Brooklyn, are you in a walk-up? <laughs> uh, I'm in a railroad apartment on the second floor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Man, because that was, yeah, Jesus Christ, that's when you're hiring movers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it's becoming more real, that, that sort of thing. I, I can't, you know, just have my friends come over and, and pay them with pizza and beer like the old days. <laughs> yes, you have to start paying them with records. All right, you can have <laughs> anything you can carry in your arms one time. <laughs> just let Sounds go. great, actually. <laughs> yeah. They would absolutely do that. Absolutely do that. Well, man, do you, so do you, I mean, we were talking skateboarding and that's something I talked really heavily with Nate about. I've talked to, you know, Kurt Blue about the same thing, Thrasher Magazine. It's a very real, and so going back to your imagination of how you're riding around the neighborhood, think you're collecting points, like you're still in the game. You're still in, in the other world. How skateboarding, when you're skating in the street, how you look at things differently you look at at you know curbs differently. You look at routes. Did that translate with you skateboarding too, where you just kind of looked down a street and you saw all these opportunities? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I wasn't a, as big of a daredevil as some of my friends, which is probably why I never got to be as good or skilled or talented as um, some of my buddies did on the board. Um, but yeah, I mean, that also gave me a sense of confidence and a rush and, um, there were small hills that I could bomb down in my neighborhood growing up mm -hmm. and it got to the point where I could just do these hills without really, um, having the same level of fear that I did when I first went into it. And yeah, much like playing music, you know, these are like, uh, sort of checkpoints in your quest for, self-affirmation or, um, you know, self-worth that once you attain these things, they empower you. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I, I definitely credit skateboarding to sort of building up, um, my confidence, um, just in my sort of physical being at a very young age. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes, that makes complete sense. I mean, it's something it's another special thing, you know, like 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 records and tapes, skateboarding, bringing people together, you know, enlightening minds, like just taking a, a board with wheels on it and becoming it becomes a huge part of, of so many things. It's just it's fascinating. I mean, did you so did you take did you take to guitar pretty quickly? I mean, you're you're extremely proficient guitar player, but I, I I'm assuming maybe um, it probably did I mean, did it happen quick for you getting good at guitar or good enough to play the songs you wanted to play? Well, so growing up, there was always a guitar around the house and uh, a very specific guitar, actually, that my dad had when he was a kid that he learned to play on, that he played in his band growing up. He played in a band called The Discords. Um, and uh, I would... Um, I would pick up this guitar and kind of fumble around on it, but, um, I couldn't figure out how to tune it. Um, I, you know, all the strings are just basically tuned to yarn. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> um, I just, uh, I, I knew that like, you know, you stretch a rubber band, you know, um, tighter and, and the, the 
the rubber band sounds higher than if it's not pulled as tightly. So I kind of made that association with um, guitar strings. But again, I just um, I actually really needed lessons to sort of um, get my bearings. And so I started taking lessons with this guy, John Zaykowski, and he was this killer blues guitar player. Um, he had like blue jeans and a white shirt and long hair. And, um, I just thought, I was like, oh man, this guy is super cool. And he, you know, at some point he was like, you know, it, it, it was after we had gone over chords and I could kind of jump from like E to A to D back to G and I, I, I could do it, you know, without too much lag time. And, you know, I, I wrapped my head around scales a little bit. And so it was time to start learning songs. And he was like, you ever know, you ever, <laughs> it was just this funny moment where he was like, he kind of leaned close to me. Like he was telling me like a, like a, like a secret, you know, like a, <laughs> like a trade secret, like, like, Oh man, I'm about to hear some wisdom from one of the wizards. And he's like, you know, the song communication breakdown. And I was like thinking about it and I loved guns and roses. So on the, on the user illusion record, uh, user illusion two there's a song called breakdown it's like a, a deep cut and i don't even know if guns and roses knows that they wrote that song <laughs> you know and so i was like uh, i know breakdown and he just kind of looks at me and he's like huh i'm like yeah guns and roses and he just was not impressed like he's like whatever go home and like look through your parents record collection and find led zeppelin the first led zeppelin <laughs> record and and so I did. And that's how I got into Zeppelin. And that was really powerful because that was actually a moment where a band from my parents' generation connected with me in the same force and power and with the same importance that like anything that was happening um, in, in my time, quote unquote, you know, yeah. um, where I was like, oh, wow, this this is something I would just listen to on my own like it's it sounds timeless it doesn't even doesn't sound like something that was made before i was born um so um yeah communication breakdown was one of the first songs i learned um and then actually going back to guns and roses um my dad helped me learn the chords to patience um and so yeah i mean I, like again i had to take lessons to really sort of wrap my head around the whole idea of doing it. But once, once I got into it, once, once songs started to get into my fingertips, it was like, there's no turning back, man. Just needed, just needed a little kickstart. Just, just to Kick. put some gas in the tank and a map. And then you took it. Kickstart my heart. Kickstart your heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you should have said. I know kickstart my heart. Probably didn't be written yet, but <laughs> it, when you said that about the the lean in, I was picturing George W. Bush when he was giving a speech, and he'd just kind of lean in, and be like, <laughs> like he's going to tell you something super awesome, and and uh, if it just came across completely different, <laughs> strategizers, uh, yeah. But anyways, um, so well, that's awesome that you had you had a guitar growing up, you know, to, to tinker around and even you know know what it was. You know, and, and, um, but yeah, it's just the one thing about what you do that fascinates me is I never know where it's going to go. Your, your sense of, of melody is extremely interesting. Uh, I mean, the, where you go, uh, not only musically, but, but vocally, like, uh, just 
it's awesome. I, I love it. And it's, it's always a challenge. Like the, every time I listen to it the first time, it's challenging. Like it's challenging to me to not necessarily figure it out, but understand it. And I love that because it's not something that's just easily given to you, if that makes sense. And I know it's your music, but, um, I appreciate that because it makes me sit with it and, and, and really absorb it. Um, and, and of course, I mean, your tones are insane. Like you're using gear that I, I'm a sun guy myself. So I, I, I completely understand the power and volume and, and tones that you're using. And I love that too. So it's awesome that you took that kickstart and, and started creating such interesting and, and compelling music. Well, thanks man. Um, well, you know, Nirvana has been mentioned a few times mm-hmm. in our conversation. And I think they're one of the first bands that, um, was able to slip in obtuse melodies every now and then and have it somehow feel like it was the obvious choice to make. And that's something I've always admired. And then that idea and that vibe was sort of cemented in my mind as being like a a focal point even further when I got into the band Failure, Um, especially the Magnified record. um, They were all about just taking those little twists and turns that, you know, made something feel melancholy or strange Mm -hmm. or um, otherworldly or uncomfortable. Um, but the trick with that is, is finding a way to make it feel like it resolves. And it's a challenge that I, I always keep in the back of my mind because I feel like it's worth the fight to go there. If you can come out the other end successfully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. Cause it's, it's, that's one, that's the, this, the resolution, the resolution and melody. That's something with like the poison well guys. I was talking to them about that it's hard for me sometimes with poison wall because the way they resolve the melody is not where you think it should go, but eventually you start to understand why they did it. Um, did it that way. Jeff, Jeff is just a, uh, an incredible vocalist, but when he does that, it's, it's challenging. And, uh, yeah. So would you say Nirvana is one of the most influential, you know, bands on your, on your, uh, roster? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, they were, basically that gateway going back even further into our conversation mm-hmm. about the transition between, you know, one set of friends to another that, you know, basically introduced me to some of the most important people in my life. Um, they, they were the band that made it seem like, um, being in a band was attainable. Like mm-hmm. it was something that you could do. Like you only needed three people. You know, I love Guns N' Roses, but getting five people to play music, I'm like, damn, I mean, three, I'm like three. Okay. That that's like for small town Methuen, Massachusetts, that's attainable. I can, I think I can round up three people Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. myself included. (laughs) Um, yeah. Uh, and I love that they really wore their influences on their sleeves. Um, because that was my gateway into like all things sub pop. Yes. You know? At that point, I was like, Sub Pop was like a target. If I saw the the target, I would just aim my paper route money at it. Like, I'm throwing (laughs) my, here's my 14 bucks. Give me that sunny day real estate tape. Let's do this, you know? Um, So that was important to me. Um, I liked their, I liked that they weren't afraid to tell people like, hey, if you're homophobic, if you're racist, if you hate women, 
like don't come to our shows like fuck you we don't we don't want you listening to our band and they weren't afraid of that they they were like i think they were so good at what they did that they just knew that like they had their politics sort of in line and it was really refreshing um cuz i i just felt like um you know at their height they really stood for um everything that a band should be when they reached that level of popularity and influence. Um, I think they really did their best to just um, do the right thing. I agree. I agree. And one thing I think about, uh, I watched montage of heck the other night, actually, um, which I'm sure you've seen probably multiple times, but um, uh, I think if, if Kurt could have a crystal ball and see what would happen from when he started playing music, to see his journey, the 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 stuff he would write, the impact it had on people, the downside of being completely surrounded by yes men all the time, protected from you know critics and things like that, getting whisked around the world, uh, the drugs, the inevitable end. I think he still would have done it a second time. You know what I mean? Like it, it was that much a part of of who they were that I think he still would have taken it and gone with it knowing that it was going to go the way it did. Um, and I think there's something about that. You, you can't, you, you have it in you and you need to get it out regardless. I mean, of the consequences and, and um, you know, it's so important to so many people. Um, it's just, and, and same thing with what you're doing. Like it's, it's important to so many people um, and, and important to you, you know, to feel your value and, and to show, um, show what you have, you know, it's crazy to think about. Well, what was really enlightening about reading Serving the Servant, which is a book written by Danny Goldberg, his former manager, um, was the level of thought and care put into the motivation behind his actions and the band's actions, which from our viewpoint almost seemed aloof or it seemed accidental or it seemed like... um, I don't know. It was done with such ease. Um, a lot of their decisions or a lot of like their presentation of things or, or their vibe or their attitude. But, um, you know, according to Danny Goldberg and the way that he sort of presents the story of that band in his book, um, there was a method to the madness, um, quite often. And so, um, yeah, I think that's important. I think, I think making music look effortless is really the magic, but you know, you shouldn't as, as a musician or an artist, you, you, you can't fall for that trap of just going, well, it looks so easy. Um, it should be because it really isn't like there, you, you can't forget about like the countless hours that just have to go into your songwriting craft. And, mm-hmm. and also like, being on the same page with your band about like how you want to present yourselves and talking about it and communicating with them, uh, having an open dialogue with yourself about like how you want the world to see you and, and how you see the world and kind of leveling that out. So that like, really like, um, you know, I, I think people will always respond to that. Um, I think it's just as important as any chorus that you try to write, um, or any riff that you come up with or any tone you try to dial in, like, what's your message? What are you trying to say? Um, the whole package really, um, it just, 
I, I think that's the big takeaway for um, Nirvana um, is that like they really, they really, I mean, the, the simplicity of the whole thing was, um, it was by design, but it was actually a, a, a massive work of art of like, you know, the, the method that goes into the madness. And, and, um, I loved montage of heck. Um, I, I did find it uncomfortable at times to be watching what I knew was just sort of meant to be private video, but mm-hmm. like, you know, as a, as such a huge fan, like I couldn't help myself. Uh, I have, I've seen it maybe once or twice, but, uh, I have to say like reading the books, uh, by Danny Goldberg really, it really flipped me on my head. Um, because uh, again, just, you know, people, people can really learn from, I guess, how others actually put a lot of work into their, their image or, or what they want to say and, and how they say it. And, um, it goes a long way. Absolutely. And also believing, believing in it, believing in yourself where, you can tell when when an artist believes in what they're doing and when they don't, and that that carries a lot of weight too. I think with with selling people not and selling, I guess the wrong word, but I guess it is the right word. Selling people on what you're doing um, to get them to come along, um, having that confidence in what you're doing um, also shines through. It's something I've seen a lot in music where it may not be the craziest song in the world, but that person is playing it and and exuding it like. It is, you know, and so you start to believe that and 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 go along on the ride. Um, I've never read that. Serve the servants. Serving gonna, the servant. Serving the servant. I'm gonna have to read that because I have not seen that angle of of that band. Yeah, and and listen, you know, to your point, um, if that feeling isn't there, that belief in yourself, or you just don't think that you got it at that moment, we all go through these periods of dry spells or, or, you know, the inspiration's hard to find, or, you know, you've breathed out so much that you need time to breathe in. Mm -hmm. Um, like Neil Young said, I mean, he's like, I think he's, he's gone on, um, record to say, uh, something to the effect of like, that he would have said, Hey man, you can just like stop doing this for a minute. Like you can just do something else, you know, you can paint or you can sculpt or, or whatever, or just be a dad or all of those things. Like Mm -hmm. you can come back to this, you know? Um, so, but unfortunately like with drugs in the mix, it really, um, it kind of puts a fog over any sort of clarity that one could potentially have to sort of move through, um, the, the values, so to speak. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Neil Young is like a big one for me. That's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta really latch on to survivors in this world. I mean, I love so many artists who aren't around anymore and I'll continue to celebrate their work. But, you know, for me, it's all about like, you got to find those people who are still on the earthly plane and, and found ways around the roadblocks mm-hmm. and will cont- and continue to do so. And, and, and really like take a page from their book. Yeah, the the people that are brave enough to to do I mean Neil Young is is incredible and the things he's done, you know, putting out records to say are you I'm not getting out of this kind of fuck you then I'll put out these three records real quick of bullshit and get off and do and and fighting for what we were talking about earlier. He's a huge audiophile fighting about you know uh 
preserving that that um preserving music in the way it should be preserved and 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 uh i mean he's just all about that stuff like it's it's crazy it was he was he uh part of your parents music collection or did you discover him afterwards uh he wasn't a big presence with my folks but yeah he was like a late discovery i mean okay. i think getting it i think getting into like jim jarmusch films and then going like what the hell is this awesome guitar playing and, and this black and white movie dead man. And there there's Neil Young, just like doing this thing that everybody wishes they came up with. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I love Neil, you know, I can't say that I think everybody should have like uh, a device shaped like a Toblerone bar, you know, to listen to music. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I appreciate the fight. I really do. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a true pioneer, man. And it just, a just a force. I mean, are there, are there records or, 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 you know, bands that are doing it for you now, like it did back then to where you're, you're, they're affecting you in a way that, that would, would even, uh, touch what was happening back then to you. I know it's yeah, a different 100%. time, but, but yeah, like what, what, what's doing that for you? Um, man, so Not many great bands spot, out there. <laughs> no, I'm that's, curious. that's all right. I'm ready. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I love everything that has been happening with Sumac. Oh, um, hell yes. I mean, those guys are my friends, but mm -hmm. also like there's a, that added level of seeing your friends just bloom into this like art metal jazz futuristic fuck you to convention. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Um, the, the last torch record really flipped me on my head because I feel like they were sort of coming into that slowly with restarter and then um yeah once this new one hit it all kind of um gelled together in this really sort of beautiful heavy um just expression of melody and just crushing awesomeness um let's see who else um lingua ignota oh uh, yes super, yeah super mm -hmm. unique cool cathartic um uh, what else? Um, I mean, power trip, I think power trip was like one of the premier crushing heavy bands that just consistently delivered live mm -hmm. and, you know, hard to say what their future is, but I really hope that those guys continue on in some shape or form. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, there's no replacing Riley, but, and he was a wonderful dude, but, um, those guys are just so talented. It'd be a shame if something didn't come out of that. Um, and man, I don't know. The list goes on. I, I'm, I'm, my record collection's like 15 feet from me right now, and I can't <laughs> see that far. <laughs> Maybe this is a good time to wrap up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. Have you heard the newest Daughters record? Oh yeah. You don't get what um, you want. Oh my god. That record's um, awesome. And I love how Sumac did not put their new record on Spotify. Like they, they held it off. I like that a lot. Um, oh, you know, like when the owner of Spotify started saying dumb shit, like, you know, hey, if bands and artists want to get paid more, they should make more music. I just tuned out. I yeah. quit my subscription and I was like, there are other services out there with, you know, that don't have idiots just fucking saying dumb shit and making people <laughs> like me upset. So yeah. I'm going to go that way instead. See you later. Yeah, dude. Well, I mean, and that's uh, man, I that is a, a a good spot to to wrap it up too because uh, 
I'm just so I'm so happy uh, we got to have this conversation, man. I I know like like Aaron and and Brian are 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 uh, I know those dudes as well through through the show, and that's from, and, and Nate and we have so many different connections. I'm just I'm shocked that it took this long to to get to having you on the show, um, because it's crossed so many paths over the last four years of doing the show that uh, it could have happened anytime. But it happened now, and I'm glad it did, um, because you know this is the conversation we had, and we probably might not have had it two years ago. You know, um, it's a it's a special thing, and I, I just appreciate the time, dude, and and I appreciate all the the music you've put out. That moment at the Troubadour, uh, I think Stain Silver. You guys open with Stain Silver, and that that fucking driving riff right the right off the bat, just watching it from above and watching the power that it had. Um, I mean, those are priceless moments um, that I'll never forget, and and I appreciate that so much from you, and um, and thank you for that. Hey, Dewey, thanks so much for having me, and uh, I love what you're doing for the community of our world of music. And um, like I said, I couldn't say no to Nate Newton screaming at me, and um, <laughs> I'm gl- I'm glad that he did. So thank you, you Nate, and um, yeah, and I yeah again I I saw the just the list of people that you've got on the the podcast and it just seemed like a no brainer to do it so big thanks to you and yeah man hopefully we cross paths again down the road sometime when uh, all this craziness pandemic shit is over with hell yeah man I I appreciate the kind words dude and and uh, just keep fighting the good fight keep making amazing music and I'll keep listening and and uh, yeah hopefully we cross paths. All right. Sounds good. All right, Steve. We'll be in touch. Later, Dewey. Thanks. Bye. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Steven Brodsky from Caven and from Mutoid Man. This dude is a shredder. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I, I had a blast. Uh, I did not know where it was going to go, like I never do, but I am really happy with where it did. Uh, so hopefully you guys learned something about Steven, maybe found a new band, um, he had a lot of recommendations in there for some pretty killer stuff. Um, you know, he's a, he's, uh, he's a source of, of great information when it comes to, to heavy music and, and being a part of it for so long and in such influential bands. So you can definitely take his word for that. I'll definitely try to get Steven back on for a part two. Um, and I, man, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Shoot me an email. Let me know what you thought of the episode. And, uh, yeah, I'm just glad I can keep bringing these episodes to you every single week uh, on time and on schedule and consistently. Uh, We're just in a really good place right now. So hopefully you guys are as well. I love each and every one of you. Thank you so much. Thank you again. I I thank you a thousand times. I can just say thank you for an hour. Um, But definitely tell a friend, rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It definitely helps us out, you know, in sending those I see them on Facebook where people will comment on an episode, but it's just a bunch of names of friends of theirs they think will like it. That shit is awesome because I've gotten a lot of emails from people that that's how they heard of the show and they've been listening ever since. Um, And I love getting the emails that say, I just discovered the show. I'm binging back through it. That is also awesome because um, something sparked in them, something they liked and they'll continue listening. and, And I just love you know, having you guys on board. So thank you so much. If you're new, this is your first episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If it's your 179th episode, hopefully you still enjoyed it and you're not too sick of hearing my voice. So I'm going to get out of here. Tons of stuff coming up, guys. Awesome things. Stay positive. Stay, stay present. Stay, uh, stay the course. 
We're going to make it. All right. I love each and every one of you. Thank you so much. As always, we'll see you on the radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.